What happens in the Hebrew Bible is God demands the firstborn of everything in the first produce. In rabbinic Judaism and By the study, way, I thought you were going to say what happens in the Hebrew Bible stays, stays in, in the, the Hebrew, Hebrew Bible. Bible. I know. We should okay. get a t-shirt. <laughs> we should totally rule one of the Hebrew Bible. Oh, Don't talk about the Hebrew Bible. That's right. <laughs> this is the Vegas of texts. Hi everybody, I'm Beatrice. I'm Dan. We are God for grown-ups. And today's topic is sin. But before we talk about that, I just have to say, Dan, that I've been thinking a lot about the movie we saw last night. We went and saw Joker. Not the Joker, but Joker. And then we processed it in the parking garage, which is what usually happens. And then we drove around for a bit because Dan couldn't remember where he parked his car. Right. Okay. Yeah. But the movie was really interesting. Okay. Don't you think? <laughs> Those other details, are they really necessary? Yes, they are. Okay. I want people to get a full sense of your humanity and all of the wonderful things about you. It's because you're so smart. Like when people oh, are really that, smart, they why? lose track of the mundane. The absent-minded professor yep. type. So, so the movie. Yeah. The movie was great. Wasn't, yes. I mean, well, I should say the movie was really interesting and really disturbing. And I kept thinking about how disturbing it was. And I kept thinking about how repulsive they ma- he made the character physically. Yeah. He's a uh. physically repulsive character. And I guess we can't say too much about it Mm-mm. because people might want to go see it. Well, there aren't any spoilers, really. I mean... Y- that's true. It's it's a backstory. It, I thought it... You and I were talking about the, the kind of dual track where, on the one hand, you feel disgust for the right. character because of the the horrible, brutal things he does. And on the other hand, you feel... Uh, a deep kind of sympathy for right. somebody who's clearly suffering from not only mental illness, but also from kind of the the anonymity and loneliness of yeah. urban life. Yeah. And, and uh, poverty. And poverty, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a great, I thought it was a great critique uh, in some ways of, of our culture. Where things are right now. At least a, right a now. commentary, yeah. Oh, yeah, where things are right now. Does it bother you when people check their text messages in movie theaters? Well, no, because I'm one of the people who does it. That's why I asked. I'm glad we finally got this out. Yeah. No, but you know why I do it? Because you uh, want to check up on your kids and I'm make sure they're anxious. okay. Yeah. I'm a super anxious parent. But you do it in a really courteous way. You uh, you basically uh, crouch on on the floor, <laughs> <laughs> on the sticky floor of the movie theater. And I lean over. that's also how you watch horror movies, which <laughs> I, I think is hilarious. Over. You lean down and view the screen through the seats in front of you, or between the <laughs> no. seats. It's really, it's, it's very amusing. It's the only way I can watch horror movies really? is to watch them with you because while I'm terrified by what's on the screen, I'm laughing at what's uh, off. Okay. Okay. Anyway. So, yeah. No, I feel like I need to know if they're okay. I'm a very anxious parent. And I'm just anxious. Yeah, so you that's understand. That's why we're friends. Yeah. Yep, I'm sure that's it. That's the well, basis that's the of only our friendship. Reason. I do think <laughs> we understand the, each other. What's the basis of your friendship? We understand each other and we're and both, we're both really neurotic. People. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and so there's no judgment. No judgment. But when it comes to sin, there's lots of judgment. Well, and this is such a great topic because of how differently it's handled uh, between the two traditions in which we find ourselves mm-hmm. at home. And so I don't even know how to begin talking about sin. We could begin at the beginning. Your tradition, as I understand it, in part from you, is that there is no such thing as an original fall. No, there's no fall. Right. So sin, what is it, in chapter 4 of Genesis, lurks behind the door? Or crouches. 
like you do in movie theaters. Stop it. To text and to <laughs> I don't hide crouch. From the I feel screen. like you need, I also have OCD. I'm not going to get that close to the floor. Do you know what I mean? See, so you're hovering. Do you about know two I keep it in my purse and I surround it by the purse and I peek in. Right, right. Okay, right. Well, I'm glad that you noticed that though. I was trying I'm, not I'm, to disrupt you. I'm glad that you clarified that for <laughs> yeah. the for the folks at home. And well, yes, yeah. Now you know if we're in a movie together, I won't disturb you with a bright screen. I understand why you text. I don't understand why people, especially through the previews, even are just scrolling through. I think people have lost the capacity to just be. I agree. Um, which is why when I put my phone away um, for Shabbat, I go through a little bit of withdrawal. And I don't know what to do with my hands, and I don't know what to do with my attention. And it takes a little bit of time for me to exhale and just get into my body and just be. And that is a sad commentary on where things are, but also I think a demonstration of why, for example, Heschel says we need Shabbat. Right. And Jews need Shabbat, but everybody needs this moment where they unplug, literally and proverbially, so that we, so that they can uh, get back into uh, being a human and I th- distracting themselves. I think that's the the genius of uh, of a religious tradition that has rituals in place that help us. Like you said, unplug Mm -hmm. that help us reorient ourselves, recalibrate. And I, as you know, I have uh, considerable envy of your tradition. And I think that. Do you want me to talk about the bad stuff? No. Go ahead. Well, we can talk about the bad stuff. Although I'm sure, (laughs) I'm sure my tradition can give you a run for for your money on that one. But I, one of the things I do love about my tradition is that we have a period of Lent, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. W- which essentially functions in much the same way. The trouble is that, and of course, we also have Sundays, which are meant to be observed, I think, mm-hmm. the way Sabbath is observed by, by Jews. But we don't, we don't really practice that. At least I don't really practice that. But I do find that having a, a segment of the, of the church calendar set aside for this kind of unplugging that you're talking about is really, really beneficial. It helps me be more human Mm -hmm. and it helps me be freer. And, uh, I think all of those things are good. Well, since you're clergy, you can't rest in the same way on Sunday. No, No, I cannot. And that's the price that clergy pay. Right. And I think that's universal. I mean, my friends and former students who are rabbis, precisely can't rest on the rest days. Right. And that's, I I think that's a a big cost. So it's a real, it's an act of love to take those roles and make it possible for other people to experience it. I think it's a big cost if the clergy person in question doesn't take another day as Sabbath. Okay. So when I take my Sabbath day, I deliberately avoid doing any church work. Okay. Which includes answering emails, and sometimes people don't like that. Or I don't clean out my mailbox, which I probably should. And I was talking with somebody about that this morning. I let things pile up, and Mm -hmm. I'm doing that because I'm convinced that the mail will provide a facade behind which exists the lost Ark of the Covenant. So I'm leaving (laughs) the mail in the mail slot Mm -hmm. to make sure that nobody finds out what's behind it. But anyway. Do you have the Ark of the Covenant in your office? We do. Not in my office, but in the church. Okay. And we also, there's a little doorway to Narnia. (gasps) Yep. 
It's such a special building. Did I yeah. tell you? I got a and call. And we're a stop on the way to uh, Hogwarts as well. Uh-huh. Yes. In 2007 or 2008, I got a call from a local newspaper saying some guy, this was in Los Angeles, some guy has found the Ark of the Covenant. I don't remember his name. And we wanted to confer Indiana with Indiana Jones, I believe. It, right? Dr. Jones. He <laughs> said, so we wanted to confer with a biblical scholar to see what she thought. And I said, he didn't find the Ark of the Covenant. And they said, do you want to hear the evidence? I'm like, sure. But he didn't find the Ark of the Covenant. And she Sure enough, it involved mystical white tigers and magical caves. And I'm like, really? A regular newspaper is writing about this? Anyway, um, so, okay, we were we were talking well, about sin. Just one last thing about yes. the Ark of the Covenant. Yes, we, all, the Covenant. we all know what the legitimate Ark of the Covenant will do. It will cause Your hemorrhoids. To mel- oh, hemorrhoids, which yes. is what it did to the Philistines. That's right. That's the right. Ark wandering stories are hilarious, yes. aren't they? When the Ark yes. of the Covenant, the Philistines steal it, they get sick, the gods in their temple um, suffer... They get knocked over, right? Yeah. And decapitated, and, right. and then they get hemorrhoids. And right. so they give it back. Right. And David, David is like, hey, I'm not sure about bringing this thing into Jerusalem yet. Hey, you people over there, can you hold on to it for a bit and let's see how it works for you? That didn't work out very well, did it? It did. It, it, they were fine. Oh, but And did so he... then he took it back into Jerusalem. Oh, he did. Oh, I thought after that point it was lost. No. It was lost after a battle, wasn't it? It was lost after um, the Babylonian attack on the on on Jerusalem and the exile. It went missing then. Did Jeremiah take it? Who knows? Wow. A radio transmitter to God. Radio transmitter to God. (laughs) So, um, sin. Okay, sin. So, um, I will say that in Jerusalem. That wasn't an imperative, by the way. (laughs) Oh, every day. Let's talk about sin. Every day. It crouches at the door. Yes. the word in Genesis 4 is chet, and um, there's also the words avon and pesha that are used to describe sin, and there's a lot of conversation about what they mean, um, and a common way people describe chet is that um, it's as if you're aiming at, you have an arrow and you're aiming at a, what's those things called you aim arrows at? Target. A target, okay, but you miss the target. Harmartia is the, I think it's the... Greek word, and that uh, is the is the way that Aristotle understands sin. Okay, it's, I believe, and I, I'd have to being a little older, I'd have to go back and and, and look that That's up. That's okay. Check that out. There's good stuff. But uh, that is a common way of, yeah. of understanding sin. Matt uh, Whitlock, one of our well, my former colleague and your your present colleague, He's one great. of the most brilliant people I know. Matt talks about in the Christian tradition, how this understanding of sin indicates a kind of, uh, what does he call it? Uh, um, Etymological fallacy that we assume this is the meaning of sin according to the authors of the new Testament, because an earlier usage was this, Ah. but by the time you get to the new Testament, Paul is not talking about sin as missing the mark. He's talking about sin as a kind of enslaving power. Right. And for the Hebrew Bible, you find that sin is something that is a possibility for you, but you can be its master. You can control it. It doesn't take over. You can make a choice associated with your urge to sin um, and in that way, human beings are not lost. Human beings are not fundamentally broken. They have the capacity to make the right choice. And then you get into the apocalyptic period, and you have the externalization of good and evil, and you have people being pawns. But after the apocalyptic period, I feel like that concept of being enslaved um, is present at least in some trajectories of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Okay, And in Judaism, it goes back to an understanding of human inclinations. I see. 
and you, which actually already developed in the late biblical period, that we have a good inclination, we have an evil inclination. They're both actually good. You need both. Because they, they both presuppose freedom. Is that what makes the... No, because, um, well, the good inclination is just good. And the evil inclination is the reason people procreate and oh, right. wish to do something right. new and right. all of that. Um, and then they, the rabbis talk a lot about how to manage your evil inclination so you won't sin. Can you By back the way, up? Torah study is the root of all control of sin. Torah study. Torah study That's is what they how said. you if control you, sin? It's how you control your evil inclination. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Lots of Torah study. I, I really think there is, I guess I would say, therapeutic value or spiritual value in reading. But, but we can come back to that a little later. I, I would like to back up and just for the benefit of our listeners, could you define what you, what, what time periods you're thinking of when you talk about the apocalyptic period? I always date it around 200 to 200. That's the apocalyptic period? As the apocalyptic period. I do. And I checked it with Matt Whitlock because okay. I don't want to be wrong. So 200 to 200? Yeah. So roughly 400 right. years. Okay. Um, where the oppression of Rome and the aftermath and the birth of this new, um, I, idea about God and the world resulted in this somewhat more extreme language about how good and evil work in the world and, and that we're near the end and there's going to be this cataclysmic battle and, and, um, and how does the world actually work and how does the universe actually work? And, and like I said, I feel like it didn't retain, though you find some language and you find some ideas in later rabbinic thought, um, drawing from that, it doesn't retain its its significance and that worldview is not carried forward. But you nodded when I said, I think it does in Christianity. Can you describe sin from a Christian perspective? Yeah. And I think, well, I think when it comes to this apocalyptic period, it's important to remember that this is the period in which obviously both Jesus of Nazareth and Paul are living. Mm -hmm. And for them, especially for the, the author of Revelation, the New Testament's apocalyptic book, as well as other passages and gospels like Matthew, the idea that God was soon to end the present order of things mm-hmm. because the Roman tyranny, the Roman oppression was so bad, uh, really, really comes into focus uh, as the, the backdrop of these writings and in these writings. And so I guess one of the, the pivotal differences here between Christianity and Judaism is that to some degree throughout the various subsequent chapters of Christian history, apocalyptic is particularly in times of, of, of social unrest and uncertainty, apocalyptic is retained. Okay. When it comes to sin, I think the basic difference is, I like what you said about how from a Jewish perspective, sin is a possibility within us. Mm-hmm over which we have the the capacity, the power, we have the capacity to overcome it ourselves. And later rabbis would suggest that we could do that by reading Torah. Is that, am I understanding yeah, you correctly? and some other ideas too, but primarily Torah primarily study. Primarily Torah study. That's really interesting. In the Christian tradition, I think we've essentially lost what, what Matt Whitlock and he likes Beverly Gaventa, a professor. I think she's now mm-hmm. at Baylor University. Her, her understanding of Paul just, I, for me, changes everything. And, and what she's recovered and what, what Matt's recovered. And among all the theologians, I think, of course, my, my favorite is Paul Tillich. I think Tillich had a sense of this in Paul as well. And that is that 
Paul doesn't see sin as as an act or a misdeed. He doesn't see it as missing the mark. He doesn't see it, I'm going to use the word simply, Mm -hmm. as an inclination. He sees it as a kind of power inimical to God that has entered the world through Adam's transgression, Mm -hmm. through Adam's sin, Mm -hmm. back to Genesis 3, and that this power has subjected not only human beings, but the entirety of God's creation to a kind of captivity, Mm. right? That's sad. Well, it is, except that for Paul, this, uh, this captivity has been... We've been released from captivity because of the new Adam that God sends into the world, which is Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ enters the world and embodies what Gaventa calls, I think quite beautifully, a kind of reckless love that that ends up conquering, at least in principle, the power of sin and restoring, again, in principle, the, uh, the, the, the creation that God intended. So God essentially creates a new... And in principle overcomes this power and we are in turn invited to live out of what God has done. So Paul keeps writing these letters. I mean, I was reading this essay the other day about basically how would you feel if your personal correspondence was turned into, you know, the greatest world literature of all time? <laughs> Not the greatest, but at least the most widely read. It's up read. there. Yeah. It's certainly, I like a lot of what Paul has to say, but it's, it's, I think Paul is the most widely read author in, in Western uh, Western civilization. Matt, Matt makes that claim. But mm-hmm. anyway, so yeah, so it's a kind of power, and it would be depressing because this power is is Paul's explanation not only for why we do things against our own best interests, not only uh, an explanation for why we feel uh, sometimes that we are that we're under control, the control of something that isn't us, that is, that is moving us in, in harmful, self-destructive mm-hmm. directions. And I think, I don't know, I, I'd like to think that that's something that a lot of people, that resonates with a lot of people. Um, there's, a, there's a great line from a psychologist, Dan Goldman, who talks about neural hijacking. Hmm. And I think, yeah, that's phenomenologically or descriptively, that's what Paul's really talking about when he's talking about how sin compels him to do what he does not want to do. Mm -hmm. And I think the difference that I'm hearing here between Judaism historically and and Paul's thinking, even though Paul comes out of that tradition, is that for Paul, these can be experienced as proclivities or inclinations, but they're sourced in a power that is alien to God— and uh, uh, and and essentially a power that that is so powerful we cannot overcome it ourselves. We and need help. Yeah. And in Judaism, there is no power alien to God. Right. Well, because we're talking about an apocalyptic right worldview, we have a sort of bifurcation of of a, a binary. Right. Yeah. It's a it's a temporary or a kind of I remember scholars talking about it as an interim dualism, right? Mm -hmm. So this power has temporarily overcome the world. But again, in Jesus Christ, God has unveiled a new reality, apocalyptic. Right. And that new reality is one whereby God is creating a new. Okay, uh, I have three questions. Okay. May I? Mm -hmm. Okay, number one, isn't it Augustine who said Genesis 3 had to happen in order for God to do Jesus? That sounded weird, but you know what I mean. I do. Okay. Number two? Well, do you want to answer that? Do all three so we don't forget them, please. I'm going to forget them regardless. <laughs> okay. Um, number two, do you find the anthropology you're describing to be depressing? 
about the human condition. And number three, is this what you think sin is? I want to know what you think. So question one, I think, I think, um, yeah, Augustine would have said that. I think Aquinas says something like that. He calls it the, uh, the, the Felix culpa, the happy fall. Yeah. Because the, the fall makes possible the appearance and the, the, of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, yeah, I mean, for, for Jesus Christ's, uh, for Jesus Christ's death and resurrection to be necessary, there has to be something in humanity or over humanity that we can't by ourselves overcome. That's, that's Augustine's thinking. That's Luther's thinking. That's Calvin's thinking. And, and to a lesser degree, that's Aquinas's thinking as I understand him. Could be wrong on Aquinas, but, but I, I would, let me answer questions two and three. Okay. So I, I just want to say with question one, yes, that is a that is a position taken by some theologians in the Christian. Tradition. Is it okay that I said Augustine? I never. I've asked a number of people, how do you say it, Augustine, Augustine, and it, and it really. I've heard some people say that it's well. Uh, historically, Catholics say Augustine, and Protestants say Augustine. I don't know if there's wow. any truth to that. Or, well, he's not my guy, so I feel like I need to be respectful. Okay. Well, and it'd be interesting to explore why Augustine is not your guy, but that's another podcast. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. The second question you asked was about the... Whether or not it's depressing to yeah, see is human it, beings that is way. Is it depressing? I find it to be beneficial insofar as it gives me a lens through which to see uh, a world of conflict. It helps me make sense of the, the conflict that I see throughout life. And I mean, we're talking now about human civilization on the brink of total collapse, whether it's because of environmental catastrophe, climate change, or whether it's because of nuclear war. I mean, that's been in our, in our past since the, the 1940s and 50s. I think we very well could destroy ourselves. And so for me, when I think about this particular anthropology, this view of the human condition, it's not a question of whether it's depressing or not. It's a question of whether it's accurate or not. Do the brute facts of history support this way of thinking about the human condition? I had a professor in seminary who would say, and he's, he's drawing from a particular strain, it's called neo-Orthodox Christianity of the, the, the 20th century that has a very robust understanding of sin because of the fact that the theologians articulating it lived through the First and Second World Wars. They saw the devastation. Mm -hmm. And so what they did was they tried to recover the, the sort of classical Protestant view of, of so-called human nature, Calvin, Luther, and before them, Augustine, and to some degree, the Apostle Paul, although I think there are some important differences here. And, and what they said was, look, we, we have observed a kind of destructive capacity that the classical Protestants anticipated. Mm. Okay. And so for me, it's not a question of whether it's depressing or not. It's a question of whether it's accurate. Okay. And I find that if I accept its accuracy, which I do, I do think that we are quite likely going to destroy ourselves. But in the face of that, I feel called to to do whatever little I can uh, to 
ward off these destructive impulses, both in myself and in other people. And I guess as a good Lutheran Christian pastor, I would say, I would qualify that by saying empowered by the grace of God. Is it depressing? Yeah, it's really depressing. Most of what we see and hear on the news is really depressing. The history books we read, as you know, better even better, I'm sure, than I in some ways, given the history of your of your tradition and your ancestry, human beings can do horrific things to each other. Mm-hmm. And I find that even if I set aside the so-called Protestant view of man, it's still depressing. Wow. So This is why we don't talk about certain things. No, we do. We talk about everything, but... You know, we'll be talking about, I don't know, the end times, and we'll have to change topic. Okay. Um, well, I want your take on... No, no, but do you know these... what I... No, I'm saying about other times that we talk. Like, we'll be getting... You'll be like, and you'll bring up climate change or something, and I'll be able to do it for a few minutes, and then I just can't do it anymore. kind of shut down. I do. Um, a lot of it has to do with my kids. Hmm. A lot of it. Wow. I can't bear it. So, and I, a lot of people are experiencing that. More and more people are choosing not to have children now for that reason. So, um, so what did you want to know? You had a question. Well, I'd like to know what you think about the, the anthropology question about, um, about your view of the human condition. And, uh, I'd like to hear about whether or not your individual personal view coincides or, or, or differ is different from the tradition. Mine is mine on this one is it sounds is, is sounds, very uh, traditional. Yeah, I'm I mean, oddly orthodox in this regard. We've always known this about you. Mm-hmm. We have. Huh? We have always known this about <laughs> who is, you. Who are we? Yes. Um, we the royal me. we. Yeah, <laughs> no, you and I. Um, that there are ways in which you're quite orthodox, and um, it's part of why you're good at what you do. You think some orthodoxy is a good thing? Hello. Yeah. Okay. No, you okay. embody things. You embody things that you're talking about. That is important to me. I yes, agree. That's. I think that's a a matter of integrity. I agree. Yeah. So, tell me about your view of the human condition. Oh, okay. So sometimes I hate people. Misanthropy runs in my family, and my sister and I will just text each other and be like, "Everybody sucks. This person was walking too slow. This person was driving too slow. Why the hell was she wearing that?" You know, these are the conversations we have across the country on a relatively regular basis. And sometimes I have an enormous amount of compassion for people. Do I think we're capable of destroying ourselves? Very much so. But somehow, somewhere in me, there is a core that does not feel things are hopeless. And I don't know if I get it from the tradition. Um, I will say that the rituals and liturgy in Judaism are profoundly important to me when it comes to processing the realities of what people can do wrong. So that we have, well, we have Yom Kippur. That's a big deal, right? And that's when we talk about personal sin and we talk about communal sin and we try to wipe the slate clean. And there's a lot of communal sin. We play, we, we pray rather, uh, for our sins. We list our sins. But there's the entire month leading up to Rosh Hashanah, and then there's the fact that there's a daily confession you're supposed to make if you pay attention to the daily prayers, and that you are consistently supposed to be in a process of teshuva, of repentance and return. That built into regular life makes me feel like... 
I don't, I feel in my skin, in my very body, that we are not subject to our worst characteristics. We are not at the mercy of the worst that we can do. Does that make sense just from a verbal perspective? Yeah. Um, and I, I can't rationalize it necessarily. Um, I have been trying very hard to pay attention to the good as well as the bad. Um, and you and I talked about grace. And I've tried very hard to pay attention to where there is grace. Um, and when I do, I cannot see sin as unavoidable. Hmm. I, I would agree with that. Now go ahead and you can push me. You have I, that look I on would, your face. Well, I, I'm, because I'm listening and I'm, and I'm realizing that there are, I feel there are actually a lot more similarities here than I would have otherwise guessed based on previous conversations. Which part? The misanthropy? The, I'm the misanthropy, which I, which <laughs> I appreciate kidding. quite a bit. I remember, I remember reading about Mark Twain's, or not about, I was reading Mark Twain's Letters from the Earth, and mm-hmm. he was a misanthropist. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And he has this wonderful essay called That Damned Human Race, where he <laughs> argues instead of, uh, instead of nature evolving, it's been devolving. Oh. That it began at the highest point with the single celled oh, yeah. amoeba or whatever, and has devolved gradually over the course of history. Uh, such that the, uh, the, the end of the process is the human being. And then he says, below us, nothing. Oh. Nothing but the Frenchman. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I don't know what it is. I have that kind of, uh, of tendency that's, that's part of my disposition. And so it's easy for me to pick up sort of mm-hmm. the classical Protestant view and, and baptize it as truth because it matches my own, my own inclination. Yeah. I am also, I, I would say that there are flecks of hope, uh, within my view, but I still believe that it's more likely that we are going to destroy ourselves. At least I, I believe that conceptually. And yet I have this conviction that we should try anyway. Mm-hmm. And I don't know where that comes from. It comes I from don't... To Kill a Mockingbird, Atticus that... Finch. It comes from Atticus Finch. <laughs> Does it really? Yeah. Well, I don't... Just because you're licked doesn't mean whatever. He's, he says something about Oh. Okay. Go ahead and fighting for Tom, even though he's going to lose. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. And I find there's something her- just beautifully heroic in that. Mm-hmm. And I, it's sort of like in Cool Hand Luke when, when, uh, <laughs> when, uh, when, what's his name? Paul Newman's character keeps, uh, just getting beat to the ground. Mm-hmm. And George Kennedy is standing over him yelling, stay down. And, and Newman's character is just so, con- I guess it's Luke, mm-hmm. uh, is so, is so determined to fight, even though, He's clearly going to lose. Wow! And I, I, I think, frankly, if if the Christian tradition can produce that in me and in other people, I think that it's something for the good. Mm-hmm. But again, and I would say too that I don't think my view on this is reflective of of where a lot of other Christians are. I think a lot of other Christians either believe that in the end all's well that ends well when it sure. comes to planet Earth. Uh, or short of the short of that, um, all's well that ends well when it comes to the eternal destiny of my soul. And for that question, we'll talk about that on an, on another episode. Yes. But for the the question of what happens to the earth, I I just it, I'm very discouraged, and, yeah. and yet 
the 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 things that I'm trying to do are inspired by this this hope, even in in the face of insurmountable what seem to be insurmountable odds. So it'd be interesting to explore a little bit what we mean by grace. Grace. This okay. is going to be purely my experience. And for me, it's when some kindness shows up and you needed it, you didn't need it, you expected it, you didn't expect it, but someone shows up for you. I love that definition. You do? Yeah, so it's a kind of inexplicable kindness. It it is, and it's when it's when I mean I was suicidal, right? Um, and there were years where I I'm I'm grateful that I survived, but I didn't know I if I too. was going to. Yeah, thank you. Mm, and quite so. When I when I encountered someone who saw me and was present and was kind to me, that was life giving. That's grace. Hmm. Um, and you know me as a reconstructionist Jew. That's how God works in my mind. So that that was my next question is well, are you whether answer the question? I will, but okay. I, just a question of clarification, and, and you've kind of answered it already, but does this understanding of grace coincide with the, you know, the grand tradition of Judaism? Do you see evidence for this understanding of grace in the rabbis or anywhere in, in the Hebrew Bible? Yes. Okay. One example. Not not only though, because mm-hmm. there's such it's such a diver, you know such a broad tradition. Um. Oh God. So do you want ancient? Do you want late antiquity? Want, do you want modern? Oh my God. <laughs> <What> <laughs> I you am want? the encyclopedia <laughs> of Judaism. No, I mean what? Do you want? <laughs> I am nomad. <laughs> Star Trek I am reference. imperfect. Error. Error. <laughs> error. <laughs> Why don't you pick, let's say, one entry from any of those chapters that's illustrative, that's helpful? Well, you know, Kaplan says God is not God is an impersonal force. Force. And and where good happens is how that force flows through people. Hmm. Um, I, like I also that. was thinking about one time I had a photo of my older daughter on Facebook. This has stuck with me. And a former colleague of mine who's like a genius, Rachel Adler, she's incredible, saw the photo and she said her face is full of chen. And chen is the word for grace. And, um, and, and there, and there is, there's like a kindness that flows out of my daughter's face. There's like a presence to people. And that, that made me think of it. Um, I think about, um, chesed. That's a, that's another word for kind of grace and kindness that mercy. shows up in mercy. Mm-hmm. Um, that shows up in many places when it describes God delivering this, actually. Um, and that is when a person experiences relief or, or, um, something that they very much needed, even if they could not have made it happen themselves, even if they, um, did not, uh, even if they didn't ask for it, and even if they thought there was no way they'd get it. And, my sister, I think, doesn't necessarily have that view of grace. Hmm. And I think she has a lot of, like, work hard for what you want thing. Grace is those moments where you get what you need or what you didn't expect. And because of the grace of the people in my life, I think I survived those years. Hmm. I think there's there could be some really significant overlap there. So say more. I, I think... Grace is the unexpected, the unearned, 
I like the way you describe, according to Kaplan, the way that the way that God sort of shows up in mm-hmm. these moments of grace. Mm-hmm. I think that's beautiful. I'm quite comfortable, and this is and, and on this uh, there are I think this is orthodox, but there are a number of contemporary theologians, especially who would disagree. But I'm quite comfortable with talking about the respective powers operative in our lives. One of those powers, again, for me as a Christian, is is the power of sin. That's the mm-hmm. language we use to talk about this kind of, at least, you know, it's sort of one of those things. It can be experientially real. I don't know if it's ontologically real, if, sure. it's, if it's real with respect to reality or if it's simply a way we experience ourselves. But the the language of sin as an enslaving power helps me understand those moments where I where I feel drawn toward toward expressions of self destruction versus those moments where I am oh I can't believe I'm gonna do this surprised by Grace, maybe, why are you is surprised? because no, I mean, it's, it's almost a C.S. Lewis title, "Surprised oh. by Joy." I there's some things about him I really like, but anyway, uh, "Surprised by by Grace," where 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 I'm surprised, mm-hmm. I, I'm surprised by something someone does that's inexplicably kind, mm-hmm. that doesn't have any trace of ulterior motive or expectation. But is simply the 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 goodness of that person and or God working through that person, yeah. And and that I guess I would say is the operative anti power. It's the it's the power that pushes back against the the power of sin. So I think the difference between the kind of Pauline Christianity that I'm talking about and the Judaism you're describing is not the experience itself. You talk about inclinations. I talk about powers. Mm -hmm. But phenomenologically, I keep using that word. I think it's a great word to describe. This is, I guess, for anybody who's confused by what I'm saying, and I'm sure there are many people confused, (laughs) sometimes myself. But I use that word to talk about any kind of uh, descriptive account of experience. And so phenomenologically, I could argue that the the experience of of good and bad or sin and grace might be one place where uh, the traditions, it, I, I wouldn't say maybe a family resemblance between the traditions, some kind of parallel track between the traditions. And I mean, in this case, my tradition comes out of your tradition. So maybe it's it's a way of talking about your tradition, but with different language and with, with other real differences, but at the same time, some really fascinating similarities. Yeah. Too. Well, and I think grace can also be internal. Like during that time of my life, just waking up every day and trying again was an experience of grace. There wasn't anything in me that knew that I could do that. Hmm. I wow. Didn't. I, I think that's beautiful. And I, I've been having this experience. I've shared it in a few sermons now where I get, uh, I get, sort of bottled up in myself and it's especially if I'm cooped up working in my house sure, sure. and uh and I get I get really prone to despair in those moments and then sometimes I'll I'll go on I'll go for a walk say to the to the corner store and something magical happens in the process it's like my whole being opens up to the yeah. world around me and I'm just 
struck by by the the I'm I'm looking outside the window right now at the way that tree sways a little bit in the wind, and I I, I find that especially if I was outside uh, walking by that tree, there's something that strikes me that makes me think, my God, I'm so hmm. lucky to be alive and to experience this, and and that's when grace mm-hmm. hits me because I know it's not deserved. I didn't do anything. To, uh, to, to get the life that I have. It's also not undeserved though. That's very important to me Mm -hmm. when I think about that. It's not that I don't deserve it. Mm -hmm. It's just, uh, a beautiful happening. Mm. And I'm in it. Right. I mean, I wouldn't, that's rather than people thinking, I don't deserve this kindness. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve that. That sort of destructive self concept, um, can happen. But to be able to enjoy it and see the beauty in it. I, I agree with you. It's necessary. You know what I see when I look out is we've now hit the cold, wet season. <laughs> and then there's going to be dark, wet. That's depressing. Um, I, I think what, what's really neat about your description there is that it's, I don't know, it's like you're resisting to enter the binary itself, right? It's not, it's not that it's deserved, right? I don't go out there and I don't deserve to, to have this experience of, of what is soon to be terribly cold afternoon i but at the same time i don't not deserve it uh-huh. but it's it's neither of those options there's some kind the of issue. middle space yeah. or at least it, or the binary itself does an injustice to the kind of uh the kind of experience and the source of the experience that i'm having i don't know my current therapist who's a badass buddhist um <laughs> talks to me about the value. And this is something I've noticed about people who are older, wiser, live long lives. The value of just stopping and looking and just being right there and, um, and not evaluating, which is hard. It's hard for academics not to immediately draw on a bunch of literature that we've read and um, try to formulate some sort of response to it. It helps name the voices in my head, though. I know, That's what's right? so great about reading other people. <laughs> but I think this is what hit me about the movie last night in large part. And I said this to you afterwards, and I told you I felt like it was trite. And it might be, but he is a character who got no ki- no real kindness along the way. And, I mean, his mother was kind to him, but then we find out whatever. But And it's as if, if anyone had been kind to him somewhere along the line, genuinely kind, if there had been some point in his life when he experienced that kindness. And I feel like the movie was a commentary on that sort of brutal way that people engage each other as much as anything else. And he becomes this brutal figure in response to it. Anyway, so I think that's why it hit me. Because... Because, yeah, because there was nobody ever to, to, there was no place in his life ever where in theological language, God showed up as the good or as grace. I would agree with you, but with one really important exception in the film. The little guy. The little guy. Yeah. And I thought the actor who played him was amazing. Was amazing. Yeah. And that to me, it was weird. When you were talking about grace earlier, I was thinking that's his character. And there's, there's a, it's sort of like, uh, he's, he's the one lone star in, in the Joker's otherwise dark, dark night. It, and, and I, yeah. And one star wasn't enough. I, it couldn't no. be for anybody, but it, no, it, but he remembered it. You he were remembered the only it. one who's been kind to yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I, I think that's why it's so important. There are so few sometimes of those stars in people's lives. Yeah. 
And I think that's what makes at least my religious tradition for me uh, so important because it's a, it's a way of reminding me that I need to show up for other people and I, I hope that other people show up for me. Oh, heck yeah. Right? Yeah. So, oh, heck yeah. There was one other thing. Oh, I, one other thing I wanted to ask about your view of grace coming from a Jewish perspective. Does grace for you have any transformative effect or quality? You do realize that I can't represent Judaism. I want to, I want, no, I know you know, but I have to put out there into the podcast world that I'm one Jew and there are about what, 16 million Jews in the world today, which means there's 16 million perspectives on any given question. Correction, 16 million one. 16 million right. one. Okay. 10 rabbis, 11 opinions. 10, 10, yeah. Three, uh, two Jews, three opinions. Yeah. Um, and so, I'm only drawing on my tradition based on my own experience, right. but, um, a transformative power. I have a, it has a life giving power. Life giving. I think I would say. Does it change the person who experiences it? I don't know. I have to think about that one. Do you think it does? I don't know. I have to think about that okay. one too. Stay tuned. Yeah. I, I, I can think of, uh, I can think of one argument where it doesn't and that's what makes it grace. Nothing is expected of us. I can, on the other hand, think of many perspectives in the Christian tradition which would argue that not only is it uh, a sign of grace, but that's what validates the experience yeah. is grace. And I think my favorite, one of my favorite statements on grace in the whole Christian tradition comes from Bono in uh, a song called Grace. Do you call Bono in the Christian tradition? Do you call U2 the Christian I tradition? I think that U2 is probably one of the only Christian bands I could ever listen to. Do they I, know they're a Christian band? Well, I think th they definitely know they are. I mean, their their music is filled with all kinds of uh, of double meanings. Wow. So when, when Bono, when U2, when the song She Moves in Mysterious Ways, yeah. the religious meaning of that is they're talking about the Holy Spirit. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. So, Are you, I'm having a mind-blowing experience <laughs> and, right now. And that's what I love about U2 is that they are the band. The band U2. I always qualify that. I like you. Uh, <laughs> I want to say to people, Go I ahead. like you, but this is a different U2. So mm -hmm. they are not in-your-face Christian. It's no, no, it's themes, it, but not exactly. dogma. Exactly, exactly. And so he he has this uh, Bono has this song on on one of the one of U2's albums called Grace, where he's talking about these these really uh, beautiful little expressions of grace uh, in the world, and wow. they're they're taken they're taken from little ordinary slices of life, and and I think he I think he compares. Grace to a, I want to say a girl throwing a baton, stuff like that. You know, just uh, images from childhood. And, wow. And um, and then he has great lines there, like uh, she travels outside of karma, which I think is a wonderful expression. Wow. Not to dismiss the the traditions of Buddhism and Hinduism, and in one case of Christianity, but but really to suggest that it's not about cause and effect. It's not about what you deserve based on previous actions. It's about experiencing this unexpected, inexplicable, and at the same time, transformative reality. Takeaway from the day is that U2 is a Christian band. 
Yes, that is the takeaway. No, that's of the not day. the takeaway. What that's have we learned today? We've learned podcast. that U2 is a Christian band. That is a, that I have to go back through all my albums now. Um, but that's tons of, tons of references there. Wow. The, uh, the, the one, let's see, uh, where, uh, Betrayed You with a Kiss. That's, uh, that's one of their songs. That's a reference to Judas Iscariot kissing Jesus. I mean, they're, it, it's all over their, their work. And some of their other, their work more recently in the last maybe 10 or 15 years, and I, I'm sure there are YouTube fans that can correct me, but I think it's now, uh, much more overtly religious. You remember when they downloaded that album to everyone's iPhone automatically with your update and everyone was like, screw you guys. I don't want your album. <laughs> and now it's on my phone. Damn it. Um, wow. Well, we'll talk about, uh, we'll talk about life after death next time. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. And, um, that'll be fascinating. I heard um, a little preview. I heard on NPR on my way here when I was battling traffic that, uh, about, it was on one of those programs where people tell personal stories and it was a guy telling a story of when he, when I think they were in their twenties, he and a bunch of friends stayed in a haunted hotel and they decided to do a Ouija board Wow! and got in touch with a girl who had drowned and who was in the hotel. Wow. Um, and I was like, this is perfect. Wow. Want to do a Ouija board? No, I have, <laughs> I, I have, uh, I used to have a Ouija board and please tell me you got rid of it. Yeah. I you already live in a haunted house. This house. Oh, you're not supposed to say that. Here. Oh, I'm, oh, I'm sorry. You live in a beautiful house. You live in a house that is full of good energy and love. Ladies and gentlemen, this will be the last time I, <laughs> I speak with you because I will now not survive the haunting that is about to take place. Okay. We record these sessions in my house. And so, all right. Yeah. So we've talked about sin and grace and found some, some important differences, but there maybe you some have interesting it. similarities. And next week we'll talk about life or death. Ultimately the topic of which being beyond both our pay grades. <laughs> right? Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Everybody Goodbye. be well. <laughs>